Welcome to the Cinema Draft Podcast, presented by DraftStream, a discussion show about movies, gaming, and the unexpected cultural detours that color our life. Please enjoy your stay and enjoy the show. back welcome to the cinema draft podcast where daily fancy sports meets the movies it's your boy eduardo jackson ceo founder creator of the great cinema draft and draft stream games here with your favorite scotsman it's the original gadgie all the way from glasgow scotland it's martin how you doing that's Great right. Intro. I need to clap. I need to clap it up. There it is. More. Yes. More. <laughs> Bring it on. Yeah, no, no, no flags this time. No, no. We love. Do you know? I, I, I told you. I'm, I'm an hour behind. I'll get. <laughs> get I'll get the flag. One sec. I'll get flag. <laughs> All right. Well, well. While Marty's off getting his flag, our Andy Cohen here is here. Yeah. Here we go. Our, our God, God bless America. <laughs> That's right. We're here. We're here for you. <laughs> Please let me in on my tourist visa when the pandemic's over, Trump. Yes, that's right. Medicare uh, for all. No, <laughs> let's not. Let's not vote for that. <laughs> Stop. Stop. All right, our Andy Cohen-inspired Watch What Happens live style drinking game tonight shall be the word director for when every time you hear one of us say a word, say that word, take a sip of what you're sipping. Well, tonight's pod will be all about covering some of our favorite non-US or non-UK born directors. There we go. All right, so Marty, the social contract's on fire. The rest of the world's been on its best behavior, but damn it, the US still a viral dumpster fire. Some 70 odd countries are now gonna get tenant before me. I'm kind of depressed, kind of bummed out about that. Can't go to the movie theater, probably be going to the movie theater anytime soon. So. Tell me something good, Marty. What's good by you? What's good? Yes. Do you know? Do you know what's good? I'll tell you what's good. <laughs> it's an old because this is what I've just been watching. I've been watching three. Well, other than the homework film, which will come or that will come to later. Okay. Um, I, I, for whatever reason, you know, I'm always looking for films that I can rewatch and rewatch. You know, on my collection, and I went down the Zodiac. Um, you know, rabbit hole again, because I've got the commentary and I've got okay. the film. Okay. And I usually watch them side by side, listen to the commentary, watch the movie, rewind. I think it's a great film. It might be David Fincher's best film. Oh. There's some, I just, I okay, think it's- It's on my rewatch list. I need to, I need to hurry that one up. Yeah. He's a master at his, it's like, he's a master of his craft. And, you know, a lot of the time a director will flex their muscles, you know, show you all these flashes of brilliance. This film's actually really understated. I just find it beautifully understated. The acting, all the actors in it are amazing. Mark Ruffalo, he's fantastic. You know, Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr. They hold the film together. And I just love listening to David Fincher talking about why he did what he did, the choices that he makes, the little things that a great director does 
that you might not notice. Um, so I've been watching that. And then I also watched and have been watching and I'm still watching Alfred Hitchcock, North by Northwest and Rear Window. I love those films. Ah, well, so they're good. Go ahead. They're always there for you. Like, I think the best Hitchcock films are always there to watch, to rewatch. You can learn, even from the first five minutes of Rear Window, there's some stuff going on there that are just next level filmmaking. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, just the way that he tells you the story and sucks you in to the world of that sort of um, the big set that he built, which is the, you know, the we would call it the courtyard, you know, with the backs of all the apartments facing sort of a square and you pan around anti-clockwise to just get all these characters. Uh, it's a great film. You can really learn a lot about filmmaking and just how to kind of get your themes, you know, like how to work your themes into a story and it not be uh, clunky. Yeah, what I mean? Yeah, there's an awful lot yeah. of like, you know, metaphors and uh, just an awful lot of stuff because obviously Hitchcock was really into psychoanalysis and just, you know, all that. And a bit like David Lynch kind of pulling back the curtain on the supposedly safe suburban or just middle class lives, you know, of the populace. He was always trying to show you what lurks beneath that. And Rear Window is just a really good example. I love it, man. I love it. Have you ever seen it? I have seen Rear Window. I went through a Netflix old school binge back when they were mailing out DVDs. Yes, I've been a Netflix subscriber for that long. Jeez. And, yeah, exactly. I think it was, yeah, I had my house uh, in Atlanta, so this was probably pre-recession. So we're talking 2007. I, I went through like, I think it was Rear Window, uh, my, uh, His his Girl Friday, a bunch of like kind of old school classics for a while because, you know, my queue was shorter back then. Now my queue is infinite. And I have to make a conscious effort to remember uh, uh, what I need and want to watch. But thank you, Marty, for inadvertently leading us into our next and one of our favorite segments. It's what we're watching. Oh, I've jumped the gun. I've jumped yeah. the gun then. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's, it's good. It's good. It's you know, we have no segues on the show. That's why I use the air horn because I'm not a talented yeah. host. And I'm going to share my screen and show you one of the first things I want to talk to you briefly about what I'm watching, and that is a little show called Absentia. Let's share this. And, and as you may, and as I noted in our rundown, Marty, I am, well, actually, let me explain exactly what Absentia is. Apparently, it has a bit of a following. I personally don't know anyone who watches the show. It's in its third season, miraculously. It stars Stana Kotick. There she is of Castle fame as a former FBI agent who was abducted and imprisoned for seven years away from her family. And when she's finally found by her, her now, uh, by her uh, FBI agent husband, she returns to her now teenage son and has to kind of reintegrate into society because she was like, you know, held, held like in a water tank for like, it was just really weird, like seven years. It was really bizarre. She's tortured, all sorts of stuff. And so she's damaged, she's putting her life back together. She wants to be an FBI agent again, et cetera, et cetera. And by the third season now, uh, uh, now her husband is the one who gets abducted and she goes all Liam Neeson style trying to track him down and find him. And, and all that stuff's like in the, the, the trailer for season three. So I'm not giving anything away. And, and I've kind of watched the bits and starts and I, I just got to say, I mean, and I, I, there was, there's like a, maybe a, a three or four episode stretch from episode two to five, which I really 
you know, liked it, but then it utterly betrays you in episode eight. Like, it, it makes a choice so antithetical to the direction of the season. It just looked like pure money grab, like cash grab. Like, okay, uh, uh, Amazon Prime said we had we could do ten episodes. We only have eight episodes worth of material. Let's just do ten, let's do ten anyways. It was just bullshit. It kind of lost me. I was ready to bail. I feel bad because I, I I mean she does really good work. Like she was really hamstrung as uh, Detective Kate Beckett on Castle. I mean it was just you know a, a kind of run the mill procedural ABC show. And she really gets to you know to flex in this in this show but it, they really made such a bad narrative decision it almost took me entirely out of the series and if it does come back for a fourth season and the ending is kind of open-ended i just finished it last night uh, i don't know i can't say i'm totally on board yet i have to see a really compelling trailer if and when they're able to film this thing again have you ever heard of absentia or stana cottage no um i haven't because uh, i'm one of the few people that don't watch an awful lot of tv uh, or the, the recurrent series, and I'm always looking for one to watch. So you're saying this is not in the top five sort of recurrent dramas at the moment? Well, I would say I really like the first and second seasons. Those those were were, were really good. Uh, I mean, but once I mean, in it's not it's it's serialized, I guess. Like it's all kind of driven, you know, towards towards one thing in each season. Uh, this was similar until, like I said, episode eight, where it's just like, they make a decision, which is just, to me, narratively, it's indefensible. Didn't make any sense. <clears throat> but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not anything too deep or anything. It's not like, I wouldn't even put it on par with, say, uh, Gangs of London, which, I mean, that's, that's a hard watch, but I enjoyed that. Have you seen Gangs of London? No, is that good? It's, it's like, it's, I mean, I know people bandy this about maybe a little too freely, but it's kind of like Game of Thrones meets uh, Line of Duty. There we go. Got ya. Sort of, I, I mean, although, yeah, kind of, I mean, you get that kind of gritty, I mean, without like any of the, the long interrogations Line of Duty is famous for, without any of that stuff, but kind of like, you know, you focus... It's it's all about like this family of of uh, like a family of gangs or well, at, well yeah kind of a family of gangs in London that getting along together like separate gangs like you have this Turkish gang you have this this uh, this uh, I think uh, Egyptian or or uh, uh, Farsi gang you got this you know the, this this British gang whatever and they all kind of get along until someone's murdered and then everyone then the whole bounce upset towards a vacuum of power and the, the son of the guy who was murdered is trying to grasp it it's it's really well done it's really it's hard to watch because it's very very bloody a lot of good action it's it's good to throw on i'd, I'd recommend gangs london right so that, that one actually sounds good i mean is it a crowded marketplace for these these shows i think oh, is it like every other week like a new show crops up on amazon prime or or netflix so i don't i don't even have a tv so well i'm glad you mentioned that and we'll get to this later with our draft stream update but yeah it absolutely is crowded this is uh this is our alpha test game we only do we only list about 15 titles each week uh and and when we're up on our web app hopefully in a few weeks we'll probably uh, expand to 30. i mean there's always something new coming out always something new to check out it's a very crowded marketplace and that's why I think a game like DraftStream and our company Cinema Draft as a whole provides value because, you know, we'll expose you to some stuff you might not have known you like. Like, for example, Tijuana Jackson. And that brings me to the next thing I'm watching. Thanks for the segue. Alley-oop, Marty. <laughs> Tijuana Jackson. 
from the Draft Stream game, written, directed, edited, and starring Romney Malco, the, a, a face you've seen from Weeds, from, he's on a show right now on ABC called uh, A Million Little Pieces, which I don't watch, but he's, he's been in the game for a while. Dude's 51. Black don't crack. Dude looked like he's 35. And he, is just, he funded this thing through Indiegogo, I think raised 200000 on on the crowdfunding site Indiegogo. Actually, I didn't even know that until I was watching. I was tweet quoting out some of my favorite lines while I was watching it on, I think, Saturday. I was laughing my ass off. And one, one of the guys that follows me said, yeah, I contributed to that. I want to actually see it. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, he raised money on Indiegogo. And I thought that was brilliant. And basically, it's about this uh, – it's, it's a mockumentary about a lifelong recidivist inmate, which, yeah, I mean, which on the face isn't that funny. I mean, who likes someone going back to jail all the time? <laughs> but he's out on parole trying to make his dream of becoming a self-help guru happen. And it's funny if you know types like this, and, and I think In Living Color did a really good job of this way back in the 90s with the, with the self-educated brothers behind prison, you know, behind bars in prison. Because you always have those guys who like read some books or the lockdown, and maybe they do actually, you know, you know, educate themselves and get better. But sometimes the logic is misapplied or doesn't directly uh, translate into the real world. Is what you know what Romney Malco's uh, Tijuana Jackson calls prison logic. And, but it's funny because his prison logic oftentimes actually, in a weird way, kind of works on the outside. So I'm pretty sure you haven't heard of Tijuana Jackson. You might not have even heard of Romney Malco. But I highly recommend this if you want something super funny to watch. And what's great is that at the end of it, um, this working black actress st sticks in like uh, a, a bit of an aside at the, or a bit of a, a disclaimer at the end, no, acknowledging how fucked up the prison industrial complex is. But also what's great about this, <clears throat> about this movie is that throughout, you see him really kind of exposing like how bad the system is through comedy, through like true satire, like how, you know, expensive it is just to be a parolee. Like you have to pay all these different fees that I had no idea you had to pay. And also, everyone kind of knows about how expensive it is, at least in America, for prison phone calls. It's just, I mean, it's, it's price gouging to the extreme. So, I don't know, it's worth, it's worth uh, taking a look at if, if you want a bit of a laugh. This one looks good. Looks good. Yeah, yeah. So, so, that is what I'm watching. What are you watching, Marty? Well, other than those things that I just told you, that's kind of about it. <clears throat> because I'm right in at the moment. And when I'm writing, I find it very hard to watch stuff. That's why I always go back to the classic sort of. Uh, but what about Hamilton? Did you have you? Oh right, yeah. No, I watched Hamilton. Sorry, right? Yeah, yeah Hamilton. There we go. So I finally watched it. That gets air horn. You love Hamilton around here. All right, so yeah. So, so what do you think of Hamilton? God, you know, I'm going to be honest. As a playwright yourself, a playwright and that's well, well, I had a lot to like. It's a lot to take in, and I'll tell you something. I knew nothing about it, right? Mm. So, you know, like a lot of the time I had to stop and check some stuff out. So first things first, right? First, it's not very historically accurate. I mean, it's historically right, accurate yeah, right. spots, but it's not. So, no, I know. So, so I've got a few things that I, I just like need to sort of check up here. Go for it. Does it matter whether, like, so I looked into Anthony Hamilton, was his, that was his name, wasn't it? Uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton. Alexander, sorry, sorry, I knew it began with me. Sorry, my apologies. So, Alexander Hamilton came to UK history. came to the United States of America, and he was the son of a Scottish father and a woman who was from the island of is it Saint Nevis or Nevis? 
St. Nevis, Nevis, something like that. St. Nevis, it's Nevis, right? Yeah, yeah St. Nevis, which is in the, what we now call the West Indies, right? Now, when I was checking up, it said that it had been said that perhaps his mother may have been uh, like mixed race or black. Is that right. correct? Yeah, yeah. That's, that that's was never good. confirmed. It was never confirmed. Right. So does that matter? Or did the writers of the uh, musical want to put forth that this man who became a founding father as an immigrant was mixed race? Because that to me, I know that liberties, not liberties, I know that the casting is deliberately, they've used like, uh, it's multi-ethnic, mm. you know, to sort of represent uh, America as it is now, right? And right. that took a while to get used to just because I didn't know if people were, if that character was like in real life black, you know, so because right. I didn't know anything about it. Right. So does that matter with the, with the uh, character of Hamilton? Does it matter if he's, because I, I saw some pictures and the pictures show him and he's white as a ghost. Right, right. And, and it's interesting you mentioned that because I don't think it's explicitly, I don't think it's explicitly referred to in the actual play, but the fact that, and, and I mean, and Lin-Manuel Miranda, he's the kind of like the, the brainchild behind this. He, and I'm not, I'm not sure how familiar you are with him. I, he really rose to, to global superstardom, whatever, through Hamilton in the United States, at least. But he was already well-known. He'd won a Tony or won Tonys for doing In the Heights, a, a Broadway play uh, before. But, you know, I don't live in New York. I, I don't get to, I've never been to a Broadway show. I think I've been to an off-Broadway show. I've never been to a Broadway show. So, I, you know, I wasn't overly familiar with his work. In the Heights also, as a quick cultural aside, is coming, was supposed to come out this summer uh, as its own movie, like the movie adaptation of that play, starring some really great actors, uh, a lot of Latinx and, and African-Americans in it, but it got pushed for a whole year. Uh, that's neither here nor there. But yeah, so he, so, and he did like a sample of this with a great YouTube video if you wanna go into a quick deep, into a little uh, black hole real quick, of him performing a piece from Hamilton when he was still working on it at the White House when Obama was in the White House in 2015. And he just had, there's like a seven minute set. I think he did the, um, I think he did the song. I think he did the opening uh, song. The the one where he's like, uh, my name is Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. Right, and he did, yeah. That, did that whole part for, for Obama. And they were just, they loved it. And then that's why Obama eventually, I think in his last year in the, in the, in the White House, took Michelle out on a date to New York up from DC for a night to go see Hamilton on stage, which I think is kind of cool. So I don't. I think it would have been interesting if he'd actually brought that in, but I don't think the pl the play as it is really needed it. Um, but that's that's an interesting point. I mean, I I'd, I'd, I'd kind of heard just, that, but just I, because I was watching it, right? I was watching it, and you got to remember, I'm Scottish, so mm. I don't know anything about this history. I'm picking it up as a go, and I'm trying to figure out like what what is the point of this thing that I'm watching mm -hmm. that has got so many people raving about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so now like, so, you know, I, I've grown up with musicals. I love musicals. I've got my favorite, you know, your the, the classic musicals. And there are certain things that you need. You need a very good, um, you know, you need good tunes at the end of the day, you very good songs, okay? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, the songs were good. Uh, I preferred the rap song. Look, well, I really liked the, the hip-hop side of it. Eh? Yeah. So that was by far the best element. And that uh, clearly, like, the, the writers or the writer know what they're doing and that they've made sure that it's still a traditional 
musical because the right. musical songs, the musical musical songs sound like they could be from a Sondheim musical, right? They, right. And, very... and his collaborator, not so, not to have him left out, is the, the guy who helped him write the book is uh, Tommy Kale, Thomas Kale. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was doing a little bit of research on that. Yeah. So, oh man, I, I mean, well, that's why I wanted you to tell me. Well, well, give us your honest thought. Like, I mean, what did you think about it? I mean, I mean, I don't know. Question, I, just, I don't know because 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 I don't know what the point of it was, and it confused me a little bit because okay. right. So so well, well let me, me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Were you entertained or at least interested throughout? Yeah, but it's, yeah, but like, you know, when you're watching something and you're like, right, there's something going on with this thing because it's presented as a mainstream musical, right? but you've switched ethnicities with the casting and that's a big deal, right? Uh -huh. So like, what are they trying to say? And why are so many people, what is it that's getting people into it? Because it's, it's kind of like, I did a little bit of reading about a Hamilton guy and it, it said that he like, he may have bought slaves for people. And I was like, right, yeah. what is it? What's the story? I'm not American. What's the story? Is it that anyone can come to America? <laughs> is it the American dream? Is it? Because, you know, the American dream doesn't mean a whole lot to me, except as a sort of, you know, as a sort of context for so much American art. And I'm <laughs> totally behind that, you know, like a Western or, you know, any like a gangster film or anything, you know, or, or a war film, you know, that there's this sort of the American dream is looming and, you know, we're either challenging the American dream or we're reinforcing it. This well, seemed to well, well, yeah, well, let me, let me jump real quick and, and kind of give my thought on And, and actually I, I love uh, that take on that. The American dream really, you know, means nothing to you because honestly, at this point in, in America's, you know, fragile history, doesn't mean a lot for a lot of people either. And especially, and it hasn't for a long time for, you know, for uh, people from backgrounds like mine, you know, the, uh, black people, you know, people from underrepresented communities. And what was kind of great, at least groundbreaking for at least for American theater with Hamilton is that it was that it took something that seemed dusty and old and already kind of settled, like everyone vaguely knows from like, you know, elementary school history who Hamilton was. He's on our $10 bill or whatever. And I always thought, kind of wondered like why, but whatever, you know, he was like, he was the first secretary of treasury or whatever, fine. And, and, and after that, it's like some stuff's known about, but the popular notion of him was just, you know, very kind of dried state stuff. And to see you know, LMM bring in, I mean, uh, take something old and dusty, invigorate it with you know, hip hop, which was, which, uh, which is probably the most interesting, exciting thing about the, about the, the play, the musical, and then also having the casting that he did, everyone was super talented, you know, and, 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 you know, deserving to be on the stage and show a version of what the American dream, you know, could be or could look like, you know, was kind of groundbreaking revolutionary back in 2015, 2016, when it came out. Well, actually, I think it came out in 2016. And a lot of people like to talk about how it seemed so much more optimistic a play at the time that it ran. And these, and these were taped over a series of three performances in, I think, September of 2016. And so, so Obama was still in power. People still were very, somewhat feeling good about America. 
now we're in this hellscape where, you know, science isn't believed and we're divided over stupid shit like masks like that. And so people, you know, may not be feeling the initial optimism of this, of this play. But for me personally, not only is like uh, a, a, an actor, trained actor, whatever, acting background, and also again, going to the theater since, you know, fifth grade, I thought it was the best play I've ever seen because, and, and I wasn't like, I'm, I've never been a huge musicals guy. I like musicals better seeing them in, uh, seeing them performed live than say like on screen or whatever. But what really resonated with me with this is that everyone was so talented. The music was so good. The songs, I mean, if you allow them are truly an earworm. Like I listened to the Hamilton soundtrack songs from it at least, you know, once every two days, like literally since I've watched it. So it's, it's been, it's really, it's, it was a really great time in the theater and I enjoyed it. I love seeing people who normally wouldn't get such interesting, juicy parts like this, you know, it, get a chance to, you know, uh, reinvigorate history the way they see fit. It's, I, I like it for its subversiveness, basically. Right. So like, that's kind of like what I'm interested in hearing is that the no holds barred why you love it and why it it's kind of done so much for... Because I read some reviews. I read like the Guardian review mm. and they gave it five stars and another review that was like five stars. And I thought like the reviews were partly from like, you know, I think there was a like an Asian woman that had reviewed it. I think she was, you know, from like the Indian subcontinent somewhere. And I kind of felt that a part of her glowing review was seeing a diversity on stage in certain stories yeah, that you don't do. normally right get here. to see. Yeah. So that, you know, like, and this is something that I talk about all the time is that when you start to get away from your normal um, sort of middle class, middle of the road castings for your generic stories about your doctors and your lawyers and your costume dramas and all that, yeah? Mm. Once you get away from that and you start getting into, you know, the Latino community, the black community, or, you know, the working class Irish community in Ireland or whatever, you start narrowing down the stories that these people are allowed to tell, yeah? You know what I mean? Because the milieu is different. Because it isn't all doctors and lawyers and big houses. I was talking about um, Rear Window. And, uh, you know, the male character, the male lead, played by Jimmy Stewart, is a, a very renowned uh, photographer that goes around the world, you know, like doing like all these amazing photos and gets paid top dollar for it. And uh, his girlfriend is a socialite and she works for a magazine as well. And she lives sort of, you know, 60 odd street Manhattan. You know, these are people with money that live, you know, that can live absolutely fantastic lives. And you can tell these amazing stories. Whereas when it comes to like poorer people or, or, or minority people, the story has to reflect their color, their race, and their social background. They can't just be telling stories. And that's, exactly. Really, exactly. and that's really reductive. So from that point of view, to, because I was Googling it, mate. I was Googling like, oh, that guy there, like the French dude, you know, yeah. the guy that's playing the guy from France. I was like, well, oh, that was did. a white guy too. Yeah. And I was like, oh, right, that's cool. I like it. And then the, there was another guy, you know, like part of the gang, you know, there was a gang of sort of the guys that were doing a lot of the, the rap sort of battles and all the rest of it. Yeah. And I was looking to see who they were and they were real life characters, obviously, that were white. And I thought, right, this is cool because that's actually quite subversive. But what I wondered was, what I wondered, and this is like a, another sort of, you know, 
just a, a just a sort of angle is by telling this type of story with a multi-ethnic cast is part of the idea to bring people from other ethnic backgrounds and other minority groups or whatever along for the ride for the American dream. Do you get what I mean? Is there, is there, cause that was where I was kind of like, yeah, hey, this is your history too. Because guess what, mate? I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been thinking about this a lot where, where I've been wondering if say, uh, a family from Jamaica who came over to England, you know, when they were invited to come over in the 50s or 60s, yeah? And yes, okay, this is 2020 and there's two or three generations deep now and their kids have been born and they'll have the London accents if they live in London or the Brum accents if they live in Birmingham. But do those people identify with the hundreds of years old British culture or English culture and think, this is my culture too, just in the same way that uh, will Latino people or black people or Asian people, Chinese people, Vietnamese people, whatever, who live in America, will they watch Hamilton and by seeing a multi-ethnic cast go, this is, I'm part of this history too because I'm American. Well, and I love that you said that because that's exactly why I think, well, that's exactly why I think, at least in, in you know, my community and <coughs> communities of color, we responded to with something like Hamilton and honestly and people who go see Broadway plays and this this movie was making like like 600 grand a week as a play no I know and it was it was the biggest budget musical of all time so it was written as the biggest budget musical so there was an awful lot of money behind this from because because he was fresh off in the heights in the heights got him a lot of cloud and cachet to be able to do to pull shit off like this and that's saying something when you can win a Tony early this cat's like in his mid-30s i think that's that's one thing you, if you win a, a tony at like 32 or whatever and then and, and and then go on and make like an even better play that's some shit right there imagine imagine if john singleton had done like like boys in the hood second that's kind of what like hamilton is right i mean this is like his, his the, the biggest thing he's done i'm not sure it's the biggest thing he'll ever do but it's one of the biggest things he's, he's done and what, what what you said was was really great because him by, by him forcing this type of casting into this type of story and in this type of way. And honestly, I mean, I don't want to watch Hamilton with a bunch of white dudes rapping. I don't think it'll be as good. I'm sorry. I'll just say that. Uh, I, think it, I think it really does reclaim some space for, for people of color, especially black people who, where in, in, American, in American education, especially public education, when it comes to our contribution to this society, whatever, it's always slavery, civil rights, that's it. And it's almost like you're kind of written out. At least that's what it was when I was, when I went to- Well, well yeah, can, can I just interject there? I okay. remember watching, a, I watched a podcast and I think it was like a hip hop podcast, uh, but I don't know which one, so don't, it might not have been the Joe Budden one, so don't quote me on any of the sources, but it was, it was you know, one of the, the people on the show talking about 12 Years a Slave, or, you know, and just saying, or one of those types of, you know, a similar type film, just going, I'm sick of watching my people be enslaved in movies. Yeah, honestly, real quick. I'm honestly, sick of, you know, those have, scenes, I'm call. sick of watching, like, people getting whipped, if you know what I mean. No, 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 seriously, I, honestly, and real quick, I'll let you get back to it. I have what I, I have what I like to call something like along the lines of, of, uh, of Black Misery credits. I only have but so many a year, 
I only I, I reserve them for for things I really want to I really want to watch and 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 after a certain point I'm just out I can't watch you know you know my humanity either being degraded through either institution of slavery or through oppression you know there's only so much I can take when we still get so much of it through you know the media today anyway so yeah I've I've got a limit of black misery credit to myself so I totally I, so I totally relate to that. Which is why I rave so highly about Gregory's Girl and tried to put it in a context last time we spoke, yeah. which is that it, it's a film that only exists to make you feel good. And it was made at a time when Thatcher's Britain was tearing down, you know, the industrial Scottish heartlands and people were really suffering. And there was a minor strike either in process or, you know, it was around about the time of the minor strike. And so watching this film that wasn't all about, you know, poor Scottish people doing poor Scottish things, having problems with alcohol and drugs and violence and poverty and not knowing where the next meal's coming from and if they're going to keep a job. Actually, it was quite subversive to have a rom-com, yeah? A rom-com and a coming-of-age film and it'd be a genre movie that was actually saying, guess what? It's You can laugh at this. You'll be able to relate to this. And, uh, you know, if you see it on TV or at the cinema, you're going to walk away feeling better with yourself. And that was kind of needed at the time. Because eh? uh, I hate seeing the Scottish stereotypes. I just, I can't deal with it. I'm like yourself. I'm just low tolerance. Eh? Absolutely. Well, you know what? We are, and actually let me get my video back up again. Sorry for that, for those listening at home. But we will move on. <laughs> to our main topic of the episode. This will be our five, our top five foreign directed movies. Oh, almost said directed. Name a movie that's directed by a foreign born director, drink. As in someone who is not born in either the US or the UK. All right, we alternate picks. Once someone picks a movie, that movie is out of play. And as our guest, Marty, of course, the floor is yours. Um, God, this is, I'm going to start with uh, La Ventura by Anto Michelangelo Antonioni from 1960. Okay. From 1960, it's a, it's an absolute um, La Ventura. It's two Vs, two Vs. Oh. It's directed by Ma Michelangelo Antonioni and it won a special prize either at the Cannes Film Festival, I think, for introducing a new cinematic language, which was a kind of language of the interior, very groundbreaking. Uh, he, he would film things in a slightly different way. He wanted you to know what was going on inside the characters' minds and in their emotions and would shoot a scene that would sort of like, you know, frame it in, in a way that would kind of complement that idea. Uh, and it's essentially just a story about some uh, upper middle class people, you know, the, 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 the chattering classes, the people that have got more money than sense and more time than they know what to do with. <laughs> and they go on a boat and um, there's a couple who are not having the best of times. And the, the woman, the girlfriend, is the best friend of the, uh, the lead actress played by Monica Beatty. And the... The girlfriend goes missing when they stop on an island and they have to look for her. And in looking for this woman, uh, she ends up falling for the boyfriend. 
and then they go through all this guilt of we're supposed to be looking for this missing person, but we've kind of we've copped off. Do you know what I mean? Uh, as one may do if one was in the sort of uh, you know echelons of society when you got more more time than money and more money than sense and all this kind of stuff. But uh, it's just a great great film. He films things in strange ways. Uh, when I first watched the film, I didn't understand it at all, but I keep coming back to it and I just love it. Monica, you know, and, and leave it to you to class up the joint with something by Michelangelo Antonioni. I mean, that's and, and, and the 60s too. It looks beautiful, at least. Uh, it's a beautiful film. It's a beautiful film. I love it. I really love it. Is that? Oh, okay. I thought that was Sophia Loren. That's Monica Vitti there on the slide. Yeah. Yeah. She, she plays. Ooh, she's gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the thing is, the, the thing about the great Italian films of the 60s, because they just know what they're doing with fashion, the, <laughs> the, the costume design holds up after sort of 60 years later. The look, I mean, look at that, the, the slides. You know what I mean? It's, it's beautifully designed there. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's my first choice. All right, you know, fair enough. And actually, this will be a, this will be a great game this week because there is almost going to be zero overlap of anything so i'll be able to pick freely as i wish and so my first one is going to be oh duh parasite why am i tripping parasite of course have you seen parasite gadget yes i thought it was excellent ah yeah it's it great to see great to see a film like that win best film at the oscars it really was i mean it almost restored my faith in in uh, hollywood like almost it, i mean first of all it was by far the best film I saw last year. It was, and I remember kind of dragging my feet to go see it. I mean, it was like, I'm like, okay, so you sometimes, you know, and going to see a subtitle film on the big screen to me sometimes, eh, not, not the best way I want to, you know, spend my time on a really big screen at home, no problem. On the screen, eh, so I kind of dragged my feet, everyone was raving about it, I go see it. It's funny. I had it's no expectations, I had nothing to know, I had nothing, uh -huh. I had no expectations going in. I absolutely loved it, loved it. Yeah, a great film. Can't fault it. Um, it's one of those films that every so often you get a big shock and it turns a corner and you're like, oh, I didn't know we were going down this road. Yes, and yes, that, yes. that is so brilliant. We're so used to knowing where we're going when we watch a film. That it's amazing when it just turns on a dime. It turns on a dime and you're like, right, oh, this is one of these films. Because I didn't know anything about it going in. I try and not know anything about a film when I go and see it. I try and just go in with a sort of like an empty mind, if you know what I mean. And look at the production design. I mean, my God, it's this beautiful. set is just, I mean, the mod first of all, I love me a good modern house. I mean, if I ever get enough money to build a house, it's going to be modern as fuck. It's going to be like, like you know, uh, 30, uh, 30th century. I mean, it's going to be, you know, some shit like this with clean lines, big windows, wide open spaces. Uh, the, the colors, I mean, everything, and I think he's got like a Criterion edition, which I've yet to watch. I probably need to watch it. I really am in love with this film. This is one of the most original films I've ever watched. And by original, I mean like, like in, like in the history of like original films to me, like I think it's like maybe, I don't know, Star Wars and like this, like things like you haven't really seen before, you know, narratively, visually, whatever. And this, this to me is like right up there because like you said, the, some of the, the major twists, and when you rewatch it, you see the breadcrumbs they actually laid out, leading you, you know, I mean, indicating a twist was coming, but if you're not looking for it, you're not gonna catch it. So, and I love movies where they, where it is 
layered subtly. There is more onion, more layers to onion to peel back on repeat viewings. And this is, and this movie, I've, I've watched it, I think, four or five times. I never get tired of it, and including three times on a big screen. I love this fucking movie. It's great. Uh, it's and, and just, and everything from the light, it's just, it, it's true. It's probably a perfect movie, if you ask me. It's honestly one of the I agree. Movies. I don't think you can fault it. I don't think you can fault it. And, and I'm not one of these people who, and I'm, I'm not like, you know, and there's most people who have watched this pot, podcast uh, or this, this video cast podcast can attest to. I'm not overly precious to my films. My favorite movie of all time is Boomerang for it's totally personal uh, childhood reasons. But uh, this this is is easily probably in my in my top 10, if not top five. I love this movie. Excellent. So love that's it. my number one pick. What's your number two pick? My number two pick is I'm going to go with, so these aren't in any order, just so you know, but I'm going to go with Cries and Whispers. Oh, okay. Cries and Whispers. Tell us about it, Marty. So it's a 1972 Ingmar Bergman, who is a, like, you know, arguably the one of the, he's definitely one of the top 10 filmmakers of all time. You love, some, you love yourself from Bergman. You gave me a couple of suggestions too. I've, I've got this on my list. Yeah. So this is a film set in a big house that's kind of isolated away, which is very sort of like, you know, Bergman type thing where it's all going to take place. And, uh, it's a family of sisters and one of them is very ill and is, you know, we assume possibly, quite probably dying. And uh, like a lot of Bergman films, he gets people in an area, you know, in a room or a house and you're going to get all the interrelationships, all the regrets, all the hurt that people have caused for each other. Um, there's a married couple who there's, you know, there's definitely imperfections. You know, there's issues in their relationship. Hey, question, uh, was Bergman a playwright a, first? Uh, he wrote for the theatre, but he was writing, yeah, I mean, he was writing films from the get-go as well, though. Okay. He wrote for TV, film, theatre. He's just, theatre was his first love. He always said that, but you can tell. Because getting people in a house and having talking is very much theatrical, like, like in being like a, in a theatre experience. Yeah, the colours, I mean, obviously, so... The colors are very important to him, and Look because it's shot. a film, it's a film where there's an awful lot of pain, physical pain because people are ill, but also the pain, you know, the existential pain. Obviously, red is the color of blood, the color of suffering. Green is the color of life. White is the color of innocence. You know what I mean? I mean, black is the color of death. Yeah. So it's a very beautiful film as a color piece, you know, like a certain films, the director is really showing you a lot through color uh, and the framing. So even there, that shot there where you've got someone in a white sort of nightgown, nighty with a red blanket and oh, they're yeah. the one that's in pain. Yeah, you know what I mean? That you're telling the story through color. Uh, the thing about Bergman is you can, his films are not always the longest. Sometimes they're about 90 minutes, 95 minutes, but he oh, packs so much drama, emotion, into it and even if you're not from that world and, and let's be honest most of us are not Swedish and most of us are not upper middle class you still the emotions are real the pain is real the betrayals are real the regrets are real yeah so and that is one of uh, his masterpieces all right excellent excellent and obviously I have nothing to add but uh I, I do yeah there you go cries and whispers it's 90 minutes long 
Yeah, feels longer. Not gonna lie, it's a, it feels longer. Put it at the end of it. Your oxters are sweaty, and you need a drink or some fresh air. <laughs> that emotionally claustrophobic, huh? All right. Yes, like indeed. It. It's emotional. It's emotional. I like it. I like it. All right. So my next one is gonna be "E tu mama tambien." Yeah. Yeah. Salma. <laughs> Remember that part. Yeah, I love this film. It's a great film. Yeah, yeah. This, uh, wow, 2001. Oh, my goodness. We were uh, some babies then. Yes, I saw this in the theater. I did. Uh, and kind of put, uh, kind of put, this was, um, is this Quaron? No, this is, um, what's his face? It is Quaron. That's right. Uh, put Alfonso Quaron on the map for me. Uh, definitely put Diego Luna and, and Gael Garcia Bernal on the map for me. Uh, a road trip movie, uh, two young kind of scrappy kids from Mexico City, I think, take this road trip in the Mexican countryside, and it's a bit of a coming of age. And uh, what, is one of them poorer than the other? Yeah, yeah, I think Diego Luna's one. There's a little bit of a sort of division that's a social class division, isn't it? Yes, good point, excellent point. Yeah, the, the uh, little class tensions, uh, uh, you know, the and then confronting masculinity through class as well, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, it's it's got all those layers to it. Uh, some some beautiful shots in the Mexican countryside. Some beautiful the, the relationships in this, like they meet some some people on the road, you know, uh, uh, falling for a quick love or lust, uh, kind of becoming a man that way as well. Uh, and and honestly, for me, back especially in two thousand one, lived in L.A. I believe at the time, and it's kind of getting this access to to Mexican culture, like like not like Mexican American, but actual authentic Mexican culture was, was was really cool for me. I really liked kind of seeing the non, you know, non-Mexico City, non uh, Tijuana, non-drug, you know, related, you know, uh, propaganda bullshit, you know, type just, you know, two kids who are in Mexico with a lot of going on, like said on the surface, but you know, finding themselves in modern day Mexico. I, I kinda like I kinda thought it was cool. So yeah, I, yeah, and uh, shout out to is it um, the female lead Maribel? Maribel Verdu. Oh, she was because she, so she was also was she not also in Pan's Labyrinth and The Orphanage, which are two excellent uh, films as well. Apparently, yeah. Let's take a look at this IMDb real quick. She's yeah, in, she's good. She's a real good actress. Ninety-seven credits. Keep getting them checks, uh, Maribel. Keep getting them checks. Yeah, mostly uh, Mexican stuff. Um, but yeah, I, wow, yeah. She's Pan's still, Labyrinth, yeah, she was in Pan's Labyrinth in 2006. Okay. She might yeah, have been and, in the orphanage. Uh, otherwise, yeah, she's mostly in Spanish-speaking stuff, but, you know, good for her. Yeah, she, oh, she's incredibly uh, attractive. Yes, yeah, so that's my second one. What's your, what's your third pick, Marty? So my third one is a film called Love is Colder Than Death. <laughs> you were just going to the deep, Deep, deepest part of the ocean today, Marty. And I'm with you. I got my scuba tank on. Let's go. So Love is Colder Than Death from 1969 is the debut feature film of German genius Rainer Werner Fassbinder. All right. And uh, he, made, he made so many films in such a short space of time. Died when he was 36 years old. And he his first few films were made with people that he'd been collaborating with in the theater. He made it with very, very little money. There's very few camera setups. 
but even out the gate, you can tell this guy has a talent. He knew what the camera loved. So Hannah Shigula, uh, she's the female lead. She's splendid. She was in loads of his films from the get-go at the gate. You could tell that she was an icon of the cinema as she later proved to be. He was used, so, I mean, it's, it's just a film about um, a very small gang doing a pretty small heist, yeah? And like all such movies, they go wrong. But the thing about this film is you really get into the interrelationships between the three uh, people, which is the two men and the woman. There's a good still there. Um, there's some beautiful power games getting played. And the Hanish Gula character, she is very much aware of the sexual power that she has over these two men. Uh, it's a fantastic film made with very little money. It's it's a flawed film, but I love watching emerging talent that obviously with hindsight, because like he got to make over 30 movies in a very short career, you can tell that the talent is there even with, I mean, you can tell by the framing, you know what I mean, of, of the, the stills that you're showing. It's a great film. Uh, one of my favorite films of all time. Oh, and a great title, Love is Colder Than Death. What more do you need? Yeah, I mean, when you said, when you dramatically uh, uh, announced your film, I mean, I, I got chills. That is an excellent title. And I'm, I'm really big on like names and naming stuff. But when I was, when I was a, a working writer in, in Hollywood and I, and I had my writing partner, I, I, he would always just fuck up the names. I'm like, you know, let me, let me handle the title. Let me handle the names. This is an excellent name, excellent title. Definitely makes, makes you want to watch the movie because you want to find out how is love colder than death? I mean, what the hell? Yeah, and it, it, it's essentially Germans doing a sort of American gangster film through a sort of German perspective, joint German sort of post-war generation perspective, yeah? But uh, I love it. It's one of my favorite films. Excellent. Great pick. My third one is going to be Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Also from the aughts. Man, this movie, I mean... Actually, exactly the odds, uh, 2000. Well, I thought it was 2003. This is the one that, for most American audiences, put Chow Yun-Fat on on our our radar. Mm. Uh, I think he's a pretty big star in, in China before then. Michelle Yeoh. Uh, so, I mean, and, and actually to, to this day, just gorgeous, beautiful, talented, very athletic. Um, and and this and I'm gonna lose my shit here. Per, a, a point of personal privilege since this is technically my podcast. Fucking Zhi Zhang. Oh my god, I lost my shit over her from this movie. She she started a few more like English language things where they didn't really use her very well. But I was full blown in love with Zhi Zhang. Actually, you know what? Let me let me let's let's go let's go look her up for a second. Let's see what happens career. We're gonna do a quick cultural cold segment. Zi Zhang, are you familiar with with Zi Zhang as an actress? I've seen her in a couple of things. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I, I used mean, to, you know, I used look to at watch face. Oh my! Yeah, God. I used to watch more Oriental films uh, when I was going to the cinema more often. Oh, um, she's just. I mean, I, I can't take it. She's the, just, yeah, the House of Flying Daggers. I saw her in that. Yeah, I think I think I saw saw that. I I. I 
do believe I saw 2046. I mean, but not, I mean, she didn't get nearly as much good stuff to do as she did with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. She was in Rush Hour 2. It's kind of like, let's just throw in this big Chinese That's for the paycheck. Is that, that you get? Yeah, that yeah that, that's, that's a paycheck film. Also, you know, let's throw another Asian person because we got, you know, Jackie Chan, whatever. But I mean, it's just like, if there's if there are any justice in this world, she'd be. Oh, actually, you know, actually, I think that back. She probably still is a big deal in China, and if that's enough for her, you know, you know, you know, if she likes it, I love it. I just wish I, I personally, as American, exposed mostly to American theater, had seen more of her because she's so she's she was so fucking good, and she's also so incredibly watchable. I was falling in love frame by frame with her face in this movie and it was just so you know i mean when you weren't dazzled by you know ang lee's uh you know i'm not even sure what genre benny but gravity defying uh and it's not to be taken literally like they were fighting on top of you know 100 foot bamboo trees i mean that's you know there is a lot of wire work and a lot of cool stunt choreography so it's not to be taken literally but it's it's a great kind of fantastical tale set in like kind of uh medieval china and and where they're just, I mean, you know, uh, it's just a different style of action film that we hadn't seen before up into the two uh, up into the two thousand. It was great, and it definitely opened the door for. And this was this, this is Ang Lee, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not yeah, Ang Lee. This opened the door yeah. for Ang Lee to get a shit ton of you know more American and global work. To which he still dines out on. I mean, he's he's good. His yeah. early films, I really like his early films. Eat, drink, man, woman, and Tam Popo are very good. Yeah, yeah, no, his. I mean, and I'm not saying he's like sold out or whatever. Actually, there was an interesting. I listened to this one podcast called The Big Picture from Bill Simmons, The Ringer Network, and they actually talked a bit about um, Ang Lee's last film, which was the Will Smith one, uh, Gemini Man, where he played like a younger CGI version of himself, and and basically they they posited that part of the problem with Ang Lee's uh, oeuvre is that mm -hmm. he likes to push the boundaries of technology and just kind of see what he can do. And that's kind of what Gemini Man was. I mean, it was an okay film. It wasn't as terrible as people lead you to believe or even the trailer would lead you to believe. It was actually a decent film. Not, not, not great. It's very Chernobyl. Not great, not terrible. But, mm -hmm. uh, but it, he was playing with the whole the whole, uh, he's playing with frames per second because you can see some stuff kind of sped up frames per second wise. He's also playing with the whole CGI technology of de-aging uh, Will Smith to be his younger self. And I mean, you don't have to do very much. And once again, black don't crack. <laughs> but, but also he's always like playing with stuff like with, uh, with form and function. And that might be what kind of holds some of his films back from being, you know, bigger deals overall but as far as the oeuvre work i mean it's great like yeah like life of pi i watched that in the theater on maybe in imax i was kind of bored but i saw what he was doing what if i filmed the entire movie in a boat you know I, in the middle of the sea like i get it like he's always kind of playing with form and function and as a writer myself and you know most people haven't read my novels or anything or, or but what i like to do when i'm when i'm writing writing is i'll always try to if i can play with traditional you know narrative structure you know you know, some way or somehow, just keep myself entertained. So I, I at least can appreciate that out of angle. Good stuff. Yeah. All right. So what's your next film? Number four. Number four for me is going to be a film called The Werkmeister Harmonies. Ooh, I have to spell that one for me. Werkmeister. W starts with a W. Of course, it's German. <laughs> of course. There you go. Top Eric. one. 
So this is an excellent film. Um, that was a great year, apparently. <laughs> Bella Tarr, who is a Hungarian director, some have dubbed him the master of mud because there's an awful lot of lay, uh, rain and mud and walking in his films. He, his films, the average shot length is, you know, is several minutes long. Uh, the Werkmeister Harmonies is a couple of hours long, I think. Yeah. And there's only 26 cuts in the whole film. Wait, what? Yeah, he loves a long take. Yeah, he's great. I love him. Another so the Harmonies is The Werkmeister Harmonies is a film set in an unnamed Eastern European town, we assume during the time of communism. It's based on a book, but I think a lot of license has been taken in the story. Now, what's happened is a giant, a sort of like a, a carnival type uh, sideshow has come to town in the form of a giant whale. And you pay your money and you get to see the whale, right? Okay. But this whale is meant to be this majestic creature. And by just coming to the town, so the film is like a parable. It's as if the presence of this whale in this town and the arrival of this mythical character called the prince that no one ever gets to see, right? Mm. Turns the town bad. People go mad. And there's a bit of an uprising, yeah? The, the locals take to the streets and start destroying the hospital and all this kind of stuff. And all the while, our hero is just trying to make sense of the world and the world that he's in. And he kind of gets caught along with it. You know, he's a man who is not right for the time that he's living in, in that the madness of the times drives him mad, whereas people that survive are people that are able to cope with the madness of the times, and he is not. And you Sounds get like something see... we should all watch right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's one of those films that is about really big, big, big things. Um, it's got a lot to do with, uh, like the, one of the sort of themes in it is that, you know, the, the normal scale that we work in with music where there are like, you know, seven, there's 12 notes, yeah? Um, with uh, semitones and all the rest of it. But there was a time when there was another scale. I know there are several scales and it's where the semitones have been removed. And there's a character in the film who's the uncle who is the sort of almost like the artistic conscience of the movie and he's old fashioned or he believes in the old ways. He wants to make things simpler and almost go back to the days where you removed the semitones uh, from music. And I think that's a sort of comment on the world that's changing around them and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's a really, really, really good film. Um, it's one of those that you just have to watch and go along for it because the you know it can really take you places. The set piece, which is the destruction of the hospital, is incredibly moving. Uh, he's very good at doing these set pieces, uh, Bellatar. So yeah, the Werkmeister harmonies. Uh, you can actually watch the first scene of that film on YouTube, and it's a beautiful opening scene. One take. There's Hannah Shigula there. Look, she's in this film as well. Uh, she obviously Thank a whole lot really older. Yeah, oh, yeah. oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're taking us on a journey today. <laughs> isn't it? But isn't it great? Yeah, so yeah, 
Werkmeister Harmonies from 2000. That's my number four film. All right. Well, wow. We are getting a film education for free today, Marty. Thank yeah. you so much. Appreciate it. My number four film. And as much as I, I mean, I always tend to bring this up. It's been my go-to when talking about any kind of international or foreign film. But damn it, it always kind of brings a smile to my face. I need to rewatch it because it's been years. I mean, years since I rewatched it. And it's Amelie. Just a delightful fucking film. Have you seen Amelie? I just, yeah, I saw it at the cinema when it came out, yeah. Yeah, yeah as did I. I guess back in the aughts, I really, were, I really was like seeing everything. Uh, and, you know, especially with uh, subtitles. But I, I loved it. It's great. It's, uh, it, it's basically about, you know, a young Parisian woman who just wants to improve the lives of everyone around her. Uh, very young, Audrey, I don't like their name wrong. Tattoo. 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 Audrey Tattoo. And she's just, I mean, this smile, this face right here, she carries it throughout the entire film. She's just always just kind of like this kind of sprite of a woman who's just very, you know, idealistic and, and, and naive, but just really trying to, to help people out. And, and you can't help but fall in love with her. This introduced her to American audiences. She got a bunch of American work after it. Uh, I think she was in, uh, in the, that Tom Hanks, uh, Dan Brown book. Not, was it, I'm not sure if it was Angels and Demons or the first one. Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci Code. So she was in Da Vinci Code. Yeah, so she was in that. She got that off of this. I think she, I'm not sure if she was nominated for an Oscar, but the movie I definitely was. It got nominated for Oscars, that's for sure. Yeah, she yeah. may well have got nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, it's a French film set in Paris. Uh, you, you, just, you just gotta love it. I mean, she was great. Just great. So yeah, so, uh, so Amelie, I mean, not, I mean, there's really not much to say about this film outside. It's just one of those little delightful, heartwarming films. It's very optimist inspiring and probably the type of thing I need to watch more of instead of going through my Twitter feed. <laughs> All right, so your final one. What you got, Marty? My final one is called Shoot the Piano Player. All right, and so from which country does this hail? This is from France, 1960, and it is a French new wave classic, Francois Truffaut, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Straight up new wave, all right. Yeah, so uh, this was the follow-up, I believe, to his first film, which was called The 400 Blows. came out in 1960, starring uh, Charles Aznavour, who was a famous uh, singer-musician in France. And he plays uh, a pianist who previously had been in, you know, doing really well, concert pianist, you know, getting really good gigs, and, you know, the world was his oyster. And uh, now... We find Charles Aznavour working in a sort of seedy little pub bar type thing, you know, playing in the corner, you know, clearly not on the upside of his career. And at the start of the film, his brother shows up and his brother's in a little bit of bother because his brother's kind of getting involved with some gangster business. And as such, gangster uh, Charles Aznavour's character, he gets involved in gangster business too. So it's a gangster film. But it's also a film that's got a huge kind of emotional heart and you get a nice flashback sequence where we find out about the pianist, Charles Aznavour's character. We find out about his successful pianist days. We find out that he fell in love with a beautiful woman and we find out that maybe that didn't go so well and that this is played heavily 
on his soul and his conscience. Probably one of the reasons why he's removed himself from public life and sort of, you know, pursuing the career of the concert pianist. And uh, so it's kind of like a genre film. It's an existential movie. It's an absolute masterpiece in 90 minutes flat. It's got a lot of uh, cinematic kind of jokes in it for, you know, it plays on the fact that it's a French film and not an American film. There was things that French films in 1960 could do that American films could not. Name so, one. Yeah, that's that, a curiosity. Name one thing that they would do that, that American films wouldn't. Show naked breasts. <laughs> Amen to that. And that is, no, they, they actually do it in the film. He goes to bed with a prostitute and uh, she, he's clearly been to bed with this woman a number of times and she is not covering herself up. And he puts the blanket over her, yeah, covers her up uh-huh. and says, this is how they do it in the American films. <laughs> nice, shots fired, <laughs> all right. No, very, very cool. Uh, and adding to our, our old school film education, French New Wave. I always kind of wondered about those films. I've, I've, I don't think I've seen a French New Wave film, but if I do... You should. You should. They're amazing. Player. The films that you love are influenced by the French New Wave. And I'm talking like your Spike Lee. Spike Lee definitely influenced by uh, French New Wave. Uh, and I would have thought Italian neorealism to, to a degree as well. I mean, he's, he's influenced by all of cinema because he's a cineast. Um, but yeah, it's a really good film. I think you'd really like it. It's, it's so well done. It's, it's, it's really, it's very, very, very clever. Um, okay. all right. That's what's up. I will have to check it out. Oh, I, I, I literally the, did the object of his affections is beautiful. You know, like in a good French film, you always get a real good romance where you yourself can't help but falling in love with the woman too. Right. Okay. All right, uh, my final film, and I had thoughts. Uh, it's going to be from the same director that I'm going to preface with. I originally was going to do The Lobster, uh, but it, it's it's a weird movie, a little kind of hard to, to get into if you don't really buy into the absurdity of it. So I'll go with his more commercially viable film, and that is, of course, The Favorite from Lorg- Yorgos Laurent. I can't, I can never say his name. Uh, Yorgos Larenthinos, I think it's Greek name. I believe, yeah, yeah, yeah it's not that bad. Yorgos Larenthinos, there we go. Uh, also uh, behind, I think he's the, I think he's he executive produced the, the Great as well on, on who, the, the, the L Fanning starring show on Hulu, which did really well in our draft stream game. And the favorite, it's just, I mean, I love historical fiction. Love, love, love historical fiction. This is set in Queen Anne's court back in, uh, what is it, 16th century, 17th century? 17th century, I believe. I there think we it's go. The 17th. 17th century, yeah, in the 1600s sometime. Emma Stone is, uh, is the, the recently, I guess, uh, orphaned cousin of Rachel Weiss, who is, wow, look at this, wow. This poster is doing a lot. <laughs> it is doing a lot, isn't it? We like that. That's I love it. Poster. I've never seen... Wow. For, well, all right. So just kind of wrap, wrap up the spiel on, on what this movie's about. Basically, it's these two women kind of vying for the affections and the attention of Queen Anne. I don't know how historically accurate it is. Probably not at all. But basically, Queen Anne is, is a 
is a low-key lesbian in this movie. She's she's lonely because her previous husbands keep dying and she's nothing nothing but like a bunch of rabbits and and, and she's caring for her rabbits and eating cake and all sorts of crazy stuff. And yeah, then, she's not too healthy herself, is she? she no, really she's got healthy. gout. She's got, you know, she needs someone to rub her feet all the time. She's got it's just it's not a great time for for medicine back then. And and Rachel Vice is basically kind of grifting off her, does generally have some affection for her, but she's basically grifting off her as a courtier of the court. Uh, and and then when Emma Stone comes into the mix as Rachel Vice's cousin, catches, you know, uh, the eye of Queen Anne very strategically because she figures out she doesn't make herself invaluable to the court. She's going you know, back home, or she's going to basically be running out to be like... She's back to doing the dishes. Doing the dishes, or being a <laughs> whore, or something like that. Something crazy. So she, so it's basically a, a, a contest of, of Queen Anne's affections, played by Olivia Coleman, who won an Oscar for this role, and, and very much so. All three, I think, were nominated. It was a great fucking film. I enjoyed the hell out of it. I saw it with the draft mom. She loved it as well. And shout out to the draft mom. Yeah, shout out to Brown Baby... Shout out to the draft mom, Claudette Jackson. What up? Uh, and it's so, I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, I don't know how much this costs, but it's beautifully set design. So much. I mean, look at this one shot. So much going on. Yeah, beautiful. It really gave you, it, it really made you realize just how lonely it is at the top back in the day. You just, you, the, everything seemed cold. It was a really cold film. The rooms felt cold. Didn't, yes. didn't you think? Yeah, it had the rooms had a lot going on, but not a lot of life to the rooms. That yeah, happened. and and it, I got the impression that just you know, like everything was difficult then. You know, like to remain clean was difficult. To stay healthy was difficult. To have clean teeth was difficult. To get nice food was difficult. To get from A to B was difficult. And I think the film really played on the period in a way that other films don't. You know, when you watch a lot of these period movies and everyone's dead clean shaven, and you get the impression that they've all got beautifully beautifully shaven armpits and legs and that ain't you know, what it was like back in the day do you know what i mean everybody show me the smelled. yellow in your teeth show it me the stink yeah show yeah. me the abscesses and the rotting you know yeah show me all that shit yeah it was stinky it was smelly it was unhealthy it, we didn't have disinfectant or you know not in the same way that you couldn't just get your little spray of disinfectant clean them germs no antibiotics yeah none of that stuff no. So yeah, I thought it was an absolutely fantastic film. He's a great director, and um, yeah, we love it. We love it. We love and it. he's a and he's a weirdo too. Like I saw like a killing of a sacred deer. He's a big weirdo. He loves look. Look at the way this is. Look look at this lens. This is like what they call a fisheye lens, right? Yeah, like, very, 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 very curved, very, bended. Very. He did this throughout, and it was. I mean, look, it's just him stunning, honestly. Like, there's no reason for half the fisheye lens uh, shots in this particular film. But I no, there is. It no, was, there is. And I think it's because some of the things that would be reflected back in the day would be reflected back in the sort of convex uh, metal and stuff like that. So you would. That's how things might look. Do you get what I mean? But, but I mean, well, you know, actually, I mean, right, I'm not against, I mean, I don't have any problem with it. Obviously, I loved it. I just felt like he was a stunting on this. Like, I, I couldn't, maybe you found, like, the connective tissue to it in the theater at the time. I, saw, I just thought, this is fucking cool. Look at this wide yeah, yeah, yeah. view of the, of the room. Look at the way it kind of, I mean, it was just, it really does put a visual imprint. Kind of like how Spike Lee does his, in every, every Spike Lee film. There's that yeah. tracking shot with the still, them kind of, you know, this, the person being still with life going by them. That's, you know, this is his, his, his uh, Spike Lee tracking shot. I just love it. I, I mean, I, you know what, fuck, I'm gonna watch it again this week. 
I, I need to watch. I love all the performances, the, the costuming design. And Nicholas Holt, this is, I mean, we've seen this guy grow up in front of our very eyes. We have. In, in the UK, it was through Skins. In America, we were first introduced to him with About a Boy, uh, with Hugh Grant and stuff. Actually, maybe even the BBC or uh, BBC, but even the UK as well. But I've—it's just amazing to watch this little, you know, precocious boy grow up to be just, just—I mean, especially in the Great. I don't, I don't, you don't watch TV, I know, but on Hulu uh, is this show called The Great, where he also has—he also plays uh, a person of, of antiquity back in, I think, uh, the court of Peter the Great in Russia when Catherine's honor uh, is basically on the rise, a young Catherine the Great, who, before she's great, really. And, and he's really kind of grown into these roles where he's just like this privileged, this, this privileged young shit who knows he's good looking, knows that the world is his feet, whatever, and really plays into it. He really leans into that. And I think he got the, the embers of that performance in the great in the favorite, because he really is just kind of like, he's, he's, a, he's a man of the court, bit of a dickhead, so he just walk, walking along at night, having a conversation with Emma Stone. His conversation's over, so he decides he's just gonna he's just gonna throw her down a ravine. Who the fuck does that? Who does that? It's crazy. But he's I mean, I love Nicholas Holt. He's really kind of grown into these type of roles where he's kind of like the the, the the privileged shit. And everyone's just so on point in this film. It deserves all the Oscars it got, all the plots it got. I love this film. All one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the one. Yeah. Olivia. Clark. But still, for a film. Of that nature, by that director, it's quite good that he's getting that sort of recognition. Uh, um, Absolutely, because I want to see more of his stuff, and, and, it, and it probably bought him more commercial cachet to be as weird as he wants. Like if he wants, hundred percent, yeah, hundred percent. Any film he can now, he's like Oscar nominated. Yorgos Lanthimos. All right, so let's take a break to explain to everyone who is new to the game or the program what draft stream what cinema draft is and how the draft stream game is played for those of you watching it'll be a very brief break for those of you who are listening at home we'll be back shortly after this message movie theaters are on hiatus but we here at cinema draft are not draft stream is the streaming content version of the Cinema Draft game you know and love. Just like with Cinema Draft, you have a $100,000 salary cap for a 10-actor call sheet. No more, no less. But in this one, you have to have at least one of three types of actors for your 10-actor call sheet. Headliner, co-star, and day player. Scoring is based on a weighted average of Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic scores plus audience and user scores. Headliners get a 40% bonus while co-stars receive a 20% bonus over day player points. There's a weekly minimum $50 prize pool shared by the top two non-Cinema Draft employee call sheets. Or you can go low. Cinema Draft offers a minimum $10 lowball bonus to the lowest scoring call sheet of the week. To qualify, your call sheet must spend at least $75,000 of your budget, use at least one actor from three separate titles in the talent pool, and, of course, roster at least one headliner, co-star, and day player to your 10-actor call sheet. 
The game runs from Thursday evening to Monday afternoon with daily updates on Saturday and Sunday before final scoring after Monday, 12 p.m. Pacific time. Currently, we are alpha testing DraftStream in a rudimentary spreadsheet-based format while we work on adapting it for digital play. Tweaks happen almost weekly due to player feedback. We really need the data, so please help us out and play the game. A link to the most current talent pool is included in the podcast description. Please review the rules tab and submit your call sheet by Thursday, 6 p.m. Pacific time. Thanks again for your help and good luck. We're back. All right. So, our <laughs> yeah, welcome back, Mark. Yes, we, we are back in black. All right. So, our quarantine movie of the week last week was Steve Jobs. And let me share my screen with you real quick. You can find our quarantine movies of the week on our Twitter account at Play Cinema Draft. It was Steve Jobs, and actually, I started rewatching that last night. I'm very excited to finish rewatching it. Aaron Sorkin uh, scripted. I think it was a very high bidding war for it at the time, directed by Danny Boyle. So that was kind of interesting. Very contained, almost, I think it was, I think it might have been adapted from a play or was originally written as a play, but very talky, Sorkin-y type movie. Kate Winslet is as uh, Steve Jobs' right-hand man. Michael Fassbender. I, honestly, I did not set this up because I know he's your old, you know, college school or uh, uh, acting school schoolmate, whatever. Not set this up, but uh, just coincidence. But yeah, that was our, our movie of the week last week. Uh, uh, Marty uh, went to school with uh, Fassbender. Does a, does a good performance. Totally overlooked movie and performance. I enjoyed it. Have, have you seen Steve Jobs? No. I did, that never caught my attention um, for some reason. I think you... Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not overly arty, but as far as, like, the portrait of these so-called tortured geniuses, you know, I'm not sure about in, in, in Scotland or the UK, but definitely in America, there's a cult a cult of personality among startup founders where the, the 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 key man almost like only this guy can bring you this stuff you see it with the Elon Musks the Jeff Bezoses the you know those types where you know a lot of a lot of of american kind of of thought equities is invest in these types sometimes it, it it performs pretty well like you know steve jobs who resurrected apple from almost the dustbin of business history and oftentimes it goes badly like like the uh the the guy who did we work uh, adam uh the, the the guy with the long hair that guy i mean sometimes it can go it bust spectacularly but this i think is a really good movie in the insight of the of the megamaniacal genius where he's not a likable guy you're not gonna like this guy throughout the movie but i thought it was a pretty interesting performance so that was our quarantine movie of the week last week this week it is no it's not absentia it's a tv show it is the oh I had all set up the half of it, which is something totally different, total 180 from this. It's an utterly sweet and endearing movie uh, by Alice Wu, a Gen Z update on Cyrano de Bergerac, where in this case, yeah, the smart nerdy girl uh, played by Leah Lewis, totally winning and and, and endearing uh, movie. She helps this guy out, uh, uh, played by Daniel Deemer. Uh, who's in love with, with the the hot, she's not even like the cool girl at school. She's kind of like like indie hot, girl next door hotness, but he's very much in love with her. Alexis Lemire, and I think this is like one of her first or earliest roles. 
uh, I was I was quite taken with you, quite quite fetching as they'd say out by you, uh, and, and but also not quite what you'd expect from someone who's like the object of someone's affection. And basically writes love notes for her, but falls in love with her herself. And so the spin on it is, you know, you've got the, the coming of age, sexual fluidity, uh, that's definitely uh, more explored and accepted in, in our current times. It's definitely very Gen Z, uh, I love it. And set in a fictional Washington State uh, kind of small town of uh, that looks like Baltimore, Philadelphia. Like Baltimore. Yeah, no, they, I think they filmed in Vancouver. Uh, this is out you know, uh, by by my mom's part of the woods, you know, Washington State. Seattle's in Washington State, uh, so it's out in like kind of rural areas. It would have been cool if they actually filmed in in in, in Washington State, but they don't because of tax credits. Pretty sure it's filmed in British Columbia. But you know, shout out for highlighting. You know, I guess this looks like it's probably it, it's probably supposed to be set in like maybe the peninsula part of of Washington, the Olympic Peninsula, more rural, more whatever. But yeah, it's very winning, very heartfelt. Just, I, I loved it completely. I, I, it took me a while to, to, to get it because it was actually part of the draft stream game. I think I watched it maybe a few weeks afterwards after it was in our talent pool, but it was great. I totally loved it. Worth checking out. Very, very feel light good. Feel good movie. Feel good movie, yes. Nothing wrong with a feel good movie. Yeah. And now, speaking of the draft stream game, we're going to go with a quick draft stream update since Marty does not watch TV, does not play our game. But, you know, <laughs> I don't watch TV. does not watch TV, so this is kind of lost in you, but let, let, let's show you what so, we're... I'm so sorry. I kind of... No, let, let me show you what we're dealing with over here across the pond on, on the TV side, the streaming content side. And as you know, while we're waiting to, to get our, our game coded up, we are experimenting with an alpha test, the draft stream alpha test game. Spreadsheets galore. Not everyone's a cup of tea, I get it. But uh, we had quite an interesting week uh, last week, whereas Black is King, which was our highest, our most expensive salaried uh, show last week, was done wrong, done dirty. I'm not going to get into too much of my soapbox. People who are really want to know what I felt about this, uh, can go check out our strategy podcast, uh, our, our last three strategy podcasts uh, from last week. I was kind of pissed off because it got a 5.7 uh, Google, or sorry, IMDb user rating uh, from just the people on IMDb. And, this, and if you look, if you dive deeper into it, it's some bullshit. It's totally racially motivated. Look at it. The majority of people gave it a 10. I gave it a fucking 10. It's Beyonce, just stunning on all of us. It's a visual album, if you weren't aware, Marty. She came out, she dropped on... Oh, no, 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 no. I heard about this, right, right. So I knew, that, I knew that it was an incredible. album. Has she done a video for each song? A video for each song. It's actually a bit of a rehash of the Black of the the Lion King soundtrack from last uh, from last summer that accompanied right. the film. But when you see it with the visuals, I mean, it's I mean, it looks like a trillion bucks. I mean, the the I mean, everything. It's it's if you want, I can I can uh, give you uh, some access to it, Marty, because it's worth watching. It's just yeah, no, just from the set design. It's and the, the songs are great, and now the songs are like huge earworms. The the costuming. I mean, it, it might be some of the best costuming you've ever seen. And it's wild how she's able to do all this, not have anything leak out. There are no advanced reviews or anything. So I, so that's why I gave it, and I, I put her as the highest, the most expensive uh, actor on our slate last week at 19500 And in all honesty, this movie should have done a lot better numbers than it did. Now, look, I get it. Beyonce may not be for everyone, may not like her music. If you don't like Black is King, doesn't make you a racist. I'm fine with that. I get it. But just from pure 
just from the artistic values alone, it should have gotten 8.0. And when you dig deep into these user ratings, you see uh, these ones. Yeah, the ones, that's just racism because. Yeah, no, no, but look where it's coming from. Women, generally okay with it. Men, we're some shit. Men over the age of 30, y'all are terrible people. Check your lives. Learn, find some art. You're, 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 you're awesome fuck boys. Explain me. those stats to me. Explain those stats. Yeah, so, so, I, so, yeah, so breaking it down, it shows that, so of here, it looks like uh, any under 18, anyone under 18, damn near gave it a, well, damn near gave it a 10. Men, 10. Women, 8.8. Uh, uh, men. But those are under, small samples. The under 18s is only well, 10 this, of them. This, yeah. But, but he, these are these here are statistically relevant samples right here. 7. Right, yeah, okay, yeah. 18 to 19. 18, 18, uh, 18 to 29, 7.0 men, 8.9 women. Women are really few. So as we get older then, uh, yeah, generally speaking, men, the vote from men and women drops. No, men, it drops. Men, right, explain this to plummets. me. Explain this to me. Is it pure racism then? Yeah. Well, if uh, now if you look at the user reviews, I mean, look at this. What royalty really is about one <laughs> rating? No, let's read one. Let's read one. Oh shit! Okay, I come. <laughs> I, come I can't. I'll read it out. I come from a country where we actually do have such a thing as a king and a queen. So this will be somebody from Britain, maybe, where royalty is viewed as something extremely special, not by me, and representing of our, that's in inverted, inverted commas, culture and history. For that reason, and what the title of this one and a half hour long artsy music video implies, is that a race in and of itself can be linked to something superior. I'm indeed offended by this choice. I think it's disrespectful to the meaning of my culture and several others, and a hypocritical, nonsensical message. And as you've noticed by now, adds nothing but division after there are so many of us from every race support the whole Black Lives Matter movement with passion and will strive to continue to do so. To remove all the humanity and make it about being supreme and royal is beyond me. And so it this is somebody who is white, who comes <laughs> from a country that's got a monarchy, right? So already we've got a problem. Break and they down, don't break. like break the fact that they support the Black Lives Matter thing but they can't deal with, I'm going to support your Black Lives Matter, but don't you start telling me that black is king, because then I will withdraw my Black Lives Matter support, which means possibly my support was a little flimsy to begin with. What Very conditional reckon? allyship, yes. <laughs> so just, yeah, and, 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 and that's actually probably one of the better ones. The ones I was seeing over the weekend were like, racist trash, garbage, you know, black people. Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was more... Uh, base and, and divisive. This actually is a thoughtful, nonsensical take on on fragility. It's it's, it's white fragility at its at its utmost. And that's oh, and, and I just couldn't. I mean, it was just fascinating to me to see what happened. I mean, first of all, and in, in all of Beyonce's I guess press that I've seen for this, she said she created something that she wanted to show that something that was universal showed universal love and acceptance. And then the fact that it, you don't see a white person for the first forty minutes. And when you do, they're in serv they're servile positions, which I thought was 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 hysterical and, and awesome. Kind of shows a funhouse mirror of how black people and people of color generally have always been portrayed in white centered stuff. And so I just find it very telling. Those who for who couldn't for a second spend eighty minutes with you know 
with probably the, the, the visual, the, the, the visual musical James Baldwin of our time, because she's always, you know, uh, showing some real, you know, deep historical shit in her, in her music videos now. If you can't take 80 minutes to decenter yourself from a story, to just see what it looks like to have some other culture centered for 80 minutes and showing, you know, Pan-Africanism, how we rarely see it in the West. Happy, joyful, colorful, no, no sign of poverty anywhere, nothing but joy and, and, and color and richness and diversity within the Pan-Africanism. I mean, you might, you, you might need, you might just be a wee bit racist. You might just be a wee bit ignorant. You might just be a wee bit fragile. It's well, just ask for eight minutes. I just want to chime in here, like, that, you know, sort of like just chime in, is I have a problem with, like, the, the performative nature of how people can um, show yeah, outwardly what they support and what they don't support, yeah? Mm-hmm. And it's performative, and it's easy to do. It's a hashtag, it's a gif, it's a something. And then you don't need to, it seems that you don't need to scrape things too much before you almost get a narrative which is, I support you, but, but don't get any ideas. Don't, don't get ideas above your station and make sure you know where the power really is. And it's kind of like, it's almost like an, it's implied but not stated and clearly demographically, it's people over a certain age, be it over 35 or whatever. And it, it, it's quite, um, it, it, you know, like I'll give you, all, all I'm going to say is, Biden isn't going to solve it. Right. Biden's not going to solve it. And I'm of the opinion that in politics, there are some high profile non-white people that need to step up, step out, and actually not always take the paycheck. Uh, you know, Medicare not getting voted for and things like that. You know, just, Biden is not going to be the answer to Trump, if you know what I mean. And right. at some I mean, point- he may be, I mean, while, I mean, it just dipped quickly into politics on our very film podcast. While one thing, one sentiment that's definitely an undercurrent uh, among uh, people I you know, read and follow is that, that you know, everyone's you know, rushing to, to Biden's return to normalcy. Most likely he will win, thank God. But, the, you know, and it, it's only because we have such a binary choice that this is what we have to go with. But if we're returning to normalcy, normal still was hell for most of us. There is no normalcy. That's yeah. what I mean. Every yeah. president, you know, this is kind of why I was interested to watch the Hamilton thing back to that was I wanted to see like, well, why was there no end to slavery? Why was this happening? You know, who can we actually hold up as being a great man or a great person of history? When, you know, ultimately, you know, in the 60s, there was civil rights movement because things weren't what they should have been. You know what I mean? Like nobody gets to take credit on, there's a side of people that no one gets to take any credit in my opinion. Uh, So yeah, when you, when it comes to this type of stuff, man, like I'm not the biggest Beyonce fan by any stretch of the imagination, right? But I can totally understand um, artistry and talent. And if she wants to call her project Black is King, I don't give a damn. Like, yeah. go for it, you know? It, it's kind of like, people need to get used to the idea that when you speak truth to power or when you fight power, it might sometimes, you know, knock a little bit of, you know, it might knock you out of your way a little bit if you are one of the people that enjoys power. It might be a little bit uncomfortable. Power it might conceives not- nothing without demand, absolutely. And in this country, especially, a lot of people, you know, uh, a lot of non-Black people, you know, purport 
you know, affirmations of blackness, pro-blackness, you know, black love and black self-love as somehow being anti-white. And it is just anything but that. We are, even though, even though we have to, you know, uh, or organize our days and lives, unfortunately, around, you know, the perception and perception of white people because we do not own the power, it's not always about y'all. Is all, is all I'm saying, and so I just think. And I saw a great quote on Twitter the other day. I'm trying. I think it was, I think it was a Baldwin quote, something to the effect of of uh, whiteness without blackness is like uh, without black people almost has like no context. It's almost like we know white people in context to black people because they're so used to subjugating us in order to make themselves better. And honestly, and I always have said since high school that America would still be a third world, you know, agricultural backwater if it weren't for the fact of of the hard labor, hard free, you know, forced labor of African slaves. That's just facts. So, anyways, not not to get overly political in a in a podcast, and we're getting back to our our analysis of the draft stream game. I love a good cultural and sometimes political cul-de-sac. Uh, throw it in when you can. Throw it in when you can. You know, <laughs> you, know you know, black black is king. Not here to make friends. <laughs> Yeah, we were, we're among friends here, damn it. Uh, Jay, as much as you've been listening this long and watching this long, you know, we're going to let loose a little. Uh, Jay Bird won again. I think that was his third consecutive week winning. The Canadian sensation, the Ontario invasion, continues. Uh, Gamble 24x7, a.k.a. the all-time money winner in the cinema draft game, just behind him, and also Jay Bird taking the low ball. Uh, here's, here's some fun for you, uh, Marty. We actually, as part of our game, we actually have a bonus for the lowest scoring call sheet that manages to spend a minimum of 75,000 in budget and also has at least one actor from three of from three separate titles. And so uh, Jay Bird satisfied that bonus as well. Took home $45, G24, he got $15 for second. This week, fresh 15, we've got a, we've got it going on here. Um, an American Pickle, that is Seth Rogen's joint. Looks like a bit of a historical comedy about immigrant culture in Brooklyn maybe. Oh, a Rip Van Winkle type show. Oh, an immigrant worker at a pickle factory is accidentally preserved for 100 years and wakes up in modern day Brooklyn. That sounds interesting. I think I might watch. It is on HBO Max. Uh, what else looks interesting this week? Uh, well, speaking of politics, we've got a couple of political documentaries. Uh, I'm going to watch both because I tend to like to have documentaries on while I am working in the background. Uh, and it looks like on the trail, looks like inside the 2020 primaries this is about cnn reporters inside the 2020 primaries trail sounds like a shit show i shall watch also the swamp i'm a little less excited about but it's produced by hbo so it should have some good stuff in there the swamp is going to be terrible because it focuses on jesus christ the freedom caucus which is an ultra right-wing faction of the republican party it stars Matt Gates, who is just the worst person in one of the worst people in American politics right now. DUI infected, trust fund, uh, t- trust fund inspired, bullshit artist from Florida. He's just one of your worst people ever. But he's gonna be—he's one of the, the headliners in this in, in this uh, film. I think you can get him for cheap at sixty-two hundred. Get those forty percent bonus points. Uh, Katie Hill's great. She's also on here. She's. Uh, a, the rare Democrat uh, co- freshman congresswoman from Orange County, California, an ultra right, well, I say ultra right wing, but a super conservative part of California, one of the few in California. 
And so I think it'll be an interesting film. I'll, like I said, I'll have it running on the third screen while I'm working on Cinema Draft for you. So check these out. It should be an interesting weekend. I have no outside of, say, what should do well? Endeavor, which actually is a BBC production in its seventh season. Seventh season of Endeavor pretty much already has its, its scores baked in, already debuted over on the BBC. So you should have those scores available to you. That's, I, I believe, our highest scoring, our highest salaried uh, uh, title of the weekend. I think An American Pickle could be a sleeper if it gets good reviews. So check those out when you're making your call sheets. As always, we are giving away $50. Oh, and as always, my video is out. Here we go. Sorry for those listening at home. <laughs> as always, we have a $50 prize pool to our top two non-Cinema Draft affiliated call sheets. $35 to first, $15 second, plus the $10 lowball bonus in effect again this week. Get those call sheets in by 6 p.m. Pacific time on Thursday. Looking forward to seeing you. And also a $25 bonus for those who get a perfect call sheet or match the lowball perfect call sheet. All right. And for crying out loud, if I can keep my video up for five seconds. We're gonna bring this in for a closing, Marty. Give it for yourself. Hey. Thanks for coming on the pod again, Marty. Not at all, mate. Anytime, anytime. Um, you know, uh, I'm glad I finally got around to watching Hamilton and interesting stuff. Um, yeah, no, it was good. Good, good, yeah. good. Always good to talk to your good self. And thanks for the free presentation. I appreciate it. Uh, this is the time of the podcast where I ask people to plug their ish. So go ahead. You have something to plug? Nah. All right. Well, no, I mean, I'm writing. I'm just writing. And, and I'm not going to front anything. You know, I mean, I've got stuff. I've that's got right. Stuff. A screenplay this time, correct? No, that's that's the long term one. I'm, I'm, I'm finishing off some plays at the moment. I've, I've got, I just finished one and I gave it to a mate to kind of, have a little look and then send on to somebody in theatre. And um, so then I went back to this other one, which is called, I haven't even got a name for it actually, but yeah, uh, these are for like uh, 50 minute plays for kind of lunchtime theatre called Play Pine the Pint. And, oh, is that a thing uh, over there? That sounds actually pretty exciting. Well, no, it's not. It, it's, it's like, I've just, I, I know a guy who wanted me to write a play for him and he knows somebody, and it's always much easier if somebody can hand it to somebody than you. Oh, well, 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 Marty, I mean, where can people find your plays? I mean, do you have like a, a do you We'll have get to that another French time. Right? We'll get to that another time. I want to get someone else on. Right. I'm not the kind of, you know, I, I didn't know. I want to get someone else on before I uh, start doing all that. I want to, it's just a thing. I'd like the past, I, I want to do something. Do you know what I mean? I mean, one of my plays is still in print, but I don't want to, I don't want to. Do you know what I mean? I mean, play. All right, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna force you, but you're our resident playwright of the pod. Seriously, I mean, outside of like a shitty play I did in like high school that yeah. was very minor. Uh, award, you're our playwright I, of the I, pod. You know, no, I'm. I'm trying. This is tough times just now because theater has stalled. Yeah. So everybody's got to start thinking of other ways you know, to get their stuff together. And there's going to be a backlog, you know, because the good venues are going to be overbooked. So, you know, I have a couple of plays that are sort of rotating, if you know what I mean. Like, you know, okay. somebody, you give it to somebody, they're going to give it to someone else. We just have to wait and see. So I'm focusing on the right end. 
and hopefully one of them will stick and then that'll make it easier uh, to get. But it's nobody knows what's going on at the moment. Do you know what I mean? Uh, well, fair enough. Uh, glad to have you on the pod as usual. Greetings from Scotland. Wait, Scotland. Scotland. Oh, no, Scotland. Yeah, no, you need to get a Scottish flag. You I need do. to get make one. Make I'm, one because I've got an American one, and you know how I feel about the flag and all the rest. You know, next, next, next time but, you're on the pod, I will have the Scottish flag for you. Good shit. Appreciate you, and and we will. I'll. I guess I'll play us out or something. No, maybe. Yes, play us out. Everybody watching at home, listening at home. Thank you for watching. We'll be back next week with another one of my friends and great guests. Thanks for watching. Thanks for playing. The Cinema Draft and Trash Room Game. And we'll see you next week. Cheer bye. Scotland. Cheer bye. Here we go. Where can you find Cinema Draft? We are on Twitter at Play Cinema Draft, Facebook Cinema Draft, Instagram at Play Cinema Draft, Medium at Cinema Draft. That is our corporate blog we're even on pinterest cinema draft also subscribe to this podcast at itunes google music soundcloud or wherever you get your favorite podcast from and finally please visit us at cinemadraft.co and sign up for an invite to the relaunch we will always have games where you can sign up play for free and win real money Cinema Draft is a registered mark of Cinema Draft LLC. Both the Cinema Draft game and the CD3D decentralized app token are for entertainment purposes only.